The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the churn. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. This is Lucas Price, and I'm here again to learn with you about building elite sales teams. Imagine you're doing a screening interview with a candidate for a sales role. You talk to one candidate, and they seem pretty good, but you're not really sure if you should move them to the main interview loop. Now you talk to another candidate. Maybe not as good, but they still might have what it takes to succeed. Does this ever keep happening to you? One of the topics we're going to be covering today is how to screen for sellers in a way that's both efficient and effective to help de deal with this issue. I'm excited to discuss that and more with our guest, Mike Molfelder. Mike is a Boston-based sales leader with a career in B2B sales of over 30 years. He started off as an individual contributor and grew into a variety of sales leadership roles in companies from startups to some of the largest tech companies in the world. Mike's on a mission to improve how people sell and achieve levels of success that they dream about. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Lucas. Great to be here. What else should our audience know about you? What, what got you started in sales leadership? I started in, towards the sales leadership track as an individual contributor fairly early on. I was working for EDP, payroll company, and they had a program where you could become a sales training manager. So you had one or two people they reported to you more as a mentor than anything else. And, I, and as I did that for a little while, I realized I didn't know enough about selling. I didn't know enough about management to, to be a good mentor to those people. So I said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to focus my energy on learning how to sell and how to lead people, which I'm still learning both, by the way. That, that never stops. And fast forward of almost another 10 years later is when I moved into my first sales leadership role, because at that point I had, I had been selling everything from SMB to enterprise. I had been in tech at that point for eight or nine years, and I had a pretty good idea of how people wanted to be managed and how, to, how they wanted to be led. And I just, I wanted to be involved in more wins. And to be part of the story of people's success. Because after you've, at least for me, after I'd closed whatever, a couple of hundred deals and been to a bunch of president's clubs, I found that it was far more exciting for me to see other people getting to do things that they had only dreamed of, whether it was buying a house or a car or being able to go on vacations or whatever it was that, that they dreamed of to be able to accomplish that. So that was really what drove me into sales leadership. It wasn't a preordained kind of thing. Yeah, that's great. I've shared my story about that as well before here on the show, so I won't go into it right now, but it was a similar thing type of for me where I, I was a, a decent seller. I wasn't a great seller. I really struggled to become a decent seller, but all along the way, the other sellers always wanted my help and, and helping other sellers was something that I really enjoyed and seemed to be good at. Now, I'm glad you said that because it is a big part of it. I, what I've, one of the things I've seen over my career 
is, and it still doesn't happen as much, but it still happens, is we're going to promote our top rep into a management job. And oftentimes the top rep has personality traits that make them a top rep, but not a great leader of people. So similarly, I was not, I have my great months, my great quarters, my great years, but I was never the guy. I was never the number one. I was friends with them and I sought their advice and their help. And I tried to emulate them in certain ways, but that just wasn't who I was. But it's when you see in sports, people who become great coaches and managers of teams. But when you look back, it's not like they were Hall of Fame players. Yeah. They just paid attention to what was going on in the field. And they understand the game. And I think that's a big part of us. Yeah. A lot of times they were the backup players that become the coaches. So in your journey as a sales leader, what are some of the things that you've identified that you had to get good at in order to really be a great leader and a great team builder? So one is the power of observation and patience. And by the way, patience came to be much later and I'm still working on that. So one of the things that I learned after, and it took me a, a few times of being in, in leadership roles, that you almost have to apply a Hippocratic oath that doctors have when you start with an organization, take over a team, what have you, meaning first do no harm. The first thing is just to, to understand how things, why are things being done the way they are? Why are, what are the strengths of certain people? Why are they in the roles that they're in before you start moving things around? Because there's usually a pretty good reason for it. It's if you're building or rebuilding a house and you rip out the, the a support beam because you didn't know that was going to take the whole, a wall down and say, same idea. So I would say patience is one. I think you need to, in as much as possible, have a sense of humor because these were people and we're people helping people. We're not, I, I think as soon as you, by the way, say like, I manage people, you're already putting yourself into a kind of a deficit situation because nobody wants to be managed, but they, the people do want, they want to be coached and they want to be helped. And that's, I think what a big part of my job is, is to help people, as I said before. And because they're humans, they're going to do things that are going to, if you've raised kids, like many times you'll just shake your head can't believe people do think some of the things that they do, but they do it. I think you also need to develop a thick skin because people may not do the things that you want or want them to do or need them to do. And you can't get mad about that. You can, you can, but it doesn't really serve a purpose and it doesn't get you anywhere. And again, there's usually a reason why they're not doing, and you're also the higher up you go in the organization, the more shots you're going to take from other people who may not like what you're doing. I, I want to double click on the patience part of it for the most difficult things in life. You have to be able to hold two contrasting ideas in your head at the same time. On the patient side, I totally agree with everything that you said. When you come in, you're looking at an organization and you're trying to figure out, okay, why are they doing this? And not just assume that, that it's wrong or something like that. At the same time, I think you can go into an organization and it's like the, the analogy one of my friends gave me was when, if you move into a new house and you're like, the kitchen smells really bad in here. You want to take note of that because after a couple of weeks, you're not going to be able to tell that the kitchen smells bad anymore. And so when you go into a new organization, you want to have patience and understand, but at the same time, you want to be noting, here's something that they're doing, that if I just keep letting them do it and I never take note of it and I never, and I just assume that it's right, then eventually it's going to be like the smelly kitchen where I don't realize that it's wrong anymore. So when you're new in the organization, you want to be patient, you well, want to have understanding, but you also want to be like, take note of the things that don't seem right and not just let them become part of what you accept without ever challenging them. I'm a furious note taker and I'm still old school. I use, I, I still use paper notebooks and I, and 
it's not that I don't do a lot of work online and a lot of writing online, but the notebook still serves a purpose. First off, it makes, it does make me think, and it also gives me an archive. I can go back to immediately. So I do, I do exactly what you're saying. And I can go back and say, okay, I had this meeting with Lucas on January 18th. I can go back to my notebook and say, okay, then here's what we talked about in that meeting. Tell me a little bit about how you think of, of hiring and the important parts of it. What are the challenges hiring the right salespeople and identifying the right salespeople? This is huge. And people talk about this and write about it quite a bit, that a big part of success or failure in an organization, especially sales, because you have higher turnover, is how well you hire people. And in the past, I, I admit, I have had people say, oh, Mike's not real good at hiring people. The reality, and, and perhaps there was truth to that. I'm not, I don't get to really weigh in on it. The problem with hiring salespeople is that if you're a half decent salesperson, you will interview well, but you may not know as the leader what you have until that person is on board. So, and then you get into all kinds of stuff. Like I, I hired a guy, this is years ago. He sailed through the interviews. Everybody loved him. He had written a book. He was, he told, he said, oh, you guys use medic? I love medic. I'm all about medic. I'm, and I said, but we follow a process. It's fairly rigid. Everything is in Salesforce. It's not Salesforce. Didn't happen. This is how we qualify. Blah, blah. I, like I laid it all out. I brought him on board, could not get him to do anything along the lines of the process. He fought it and fought it. Meanwhile, by the way, he's closing deals. He's top, he's top of the heat, but he, the amount of broken glass behind him was excruciating. And I ended up about four months in having to terminate him. And it was brutal. And in the last conversation I said to him, I don't understand. Why won't you do any of the things that we're asking you to do? I was so upfront with you in the process that this is how it was going to work. And he said, I didn't think you were serious. Now, could I have mitigated that? Could I have figured that out in the interview? Probably not in the interview, but maybe I could have done a better job with reference checking, but you're going to have a failure rate when you're hiring salespeople is my point. I have learned over time that there are some things that can, that can mitigate it, that can give you a better feel for a person right away. And it, this happened, came to me after that person, by the way, you don't learn anything easy, right? Yeah. There's no, there's no easy lesson, which by the way, that's the other thing with patience is there's no overnight sensation. Not people want to believe it, but no, even if Taylor Swift is so hot right now, but when you look at her backstory, it felt like she just signed a record deal and became, you know, a billionaire. Yeah. It didn't happen yeah. last year. Yeah. I'm no Taylor Swift for sure. But what, I, so one of the things that I learned and I, we use this also on qualifying deals is the first question I ask a candidate is what's going on in your current situation that you're, that you've taken this interview. Now I may know that they got laid off or something happened and I may know what the reason is that they have said, but what I'm looking for, I'm like, I'm like, I'm showing my cards right now. So if anybody watches the podcast, they're going to know how to interview with me. But what I'm looking for is, are they running from something or running to something? And are they accountable and responsible for the situation that they're in? So if the answer to that question is, is to blame, is to make excuses, very rarely are we going past the first interview because I, I already know that I can fast forward and as soon as start, things start to get tough, they're going to do the same thing. One of the questions that I like to ask sales leaders, and I keep an internal tab, an estimate of the answer to this, but it's when a salesperson fails, what are the most significant reasons? And I, I find about 70% of the time, the answer is related to people and talent. And, and the assumption is that people have an internal locus of control, that they can control their own circumstances. 
And about 30% of the time, the answer that I get from sales leaders is the training isn't good enough, that we didn't have the right tools, the territories weren't organized properly or whatever. What I find with Yardstick is people in that 30% who say those things typically aren't interested in the conversation that we have at Yardstick around hiring and the people in the 70% are interested in the conversation we have around hiring around Yardstick. But, and so I think that's part of what you're getting at is that you believe your answer is that it's a person issue, a, a talent issue, an internal locus of control issue as opposed to like the tools are wrong or whatever. And so you're looking for, does this candidate believe they're in control or are they going to point and blame to, to, to some other issue? That's exactly it. I've had my own you know, personal journey as have we all, and I've had to deal with some difficult questions of my own. And I've had to flay my own, some of my own dragons. I'm no different than anybody else. And along the way, I have come to learn a few things that are, I think, laws, uh, if you will. One is that we don't control anything that's happening around us. We control what we say. We control our actions. That's it. A lot of times we don't even control what we think because we're getting all this stuff thrown at us constantly, either from other people in our lives or social media or whatever. But we want to blame everybody else and all these other factors. Sometimes stuff happens. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or you're in the right place at the right time. But you also have to know when that's true for you. Oh, I'm in the right, I'm like, I'm in a really great situation right now. I am going to make the most of it, or I'm in a really bad situation and I need to get out. Yeah, sometimes, do, right? Sometimes people are victims, right? How, how, how do you think someone should handle that in an interview situation? They should be able to, to address the fact that, yeah, you know what? Something bad happened to me and it happened either because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time didn't, and didn't recognize it until it was too late or. I, I put myself in the wrong place at the wrong time and I didn't recognize it. There are absolutely things that happen to people that are horrific where they are the victim and they're victimized in terrible ways. And I want to separate that. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Like when you have a person who's coming to you for a job and they're like, oh, they changed my territory and, and now I couldn't make my number. They changed my comp plan. It's okay. That stuff happens. So did you, you had your comp plan changed and your reaction to that was to quit your job. That's a victim that isn't addressing the fact that, Hey, I'm going to, I got put into a lousy situation. I, now I could, and I couldn't find the, the silver lining on that. Yeah. Maybe there is no silver lining and that's fine to say to a, to say to a hiring manager, they changed my comp plan. There's no way I can make my OTE, even if I crush my number and I can crush my number. I need to make this much money. I'm not going to make that here. That's just business. So I have to go somewhere where I can make, where I have an opportunity to make that money and more. And I'm not going to change the comp plan. I've had this exact conversation with people. I'm not going to change the comp plan. I can complain about it. I'm not going to change it. I have to live with it. Or I have to make a move. And that is a completely acceptable answer versus they changed my comp plan. I can't make any money. That's a big difference between being victimized and being a victim. And, and again, two very different things. So that's a very pointed question that you use to screen out candidates early on, right out of the game. So I love that question. I like to ease people into that screening interview a little bit. So I have a question that I'm going to share with our audience as well. And I'd love you to respond to it to get your thoughts. It's, can you explain something complicated that you understand? Can you explain it to me in 30 seconds? And part of what I'm looking for there is their communication ability, but also underlying is like, is this somebody who has a passion about something, who's a passion about something that's complicated that they been passionate enough about it that they really understand the complexity and know how to simplify it. So I, it's a two-layered question. It's not the most in deep 
psychological question, but I think it's a good way to ease people into the interview. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's a great question. I will ask that or a slight variation on it. Yeah. That question that I ask is, walk me through something that you have gone through, preferably not in your personal life, because I've learned that the hard way, that was really difficult that you, but you got through it successfully but you don't want to have to do it again. And from that, usually that gets, okay, can now explain it to me simply. So one way or the other, I'm going to, I'm going to get to the same thing. What I'll do in the screening interview is I'll ask, what do you know about the company? Whatever company it is that I'm, so, because I do fractional work, so it could be different company. What do you know about the company? And I want to understand, did they just go to the website and like, oh, Mike Mulfelder's with Calm Ocean Sales. He's a fractional sales leader. Like I, that doesn't tell me anything versus did you take the information, synthesize it, and can you explain it back to me? And then the second thing I want to know is, what do you know about me? It's not an ego question. It's, did you do research? Have you applied some thought to this? Right. Or did you, did you just show up for the interview? Because again, if I'm, if it's a transactional sale, $1,200, $1,500 a year, or it's a snack food route for PepsiCo or something like that, different questions. But when you're talking about deals that are in the tens to hundreds of thousands of, to millions of dollars, strategic executive selling, very different type of persona that's required for those jobs. And I think that's also where we're headed now from a sales standpoint. I love those questions because one of the things we know from the research is that the best sellers prepare. And there are a lot of sellers in today's day and age who think they can wing everything and don't need to prepare. But preparing for the interview is one of the best predictors of success in the role because it shows a habit of preparing. And like you said, for the types of deals we're talking about, sellers need to be well-prepared for every meeting and can't just show up and wing it. I would hazard to, to say that there are very few senior executives in mid to large companies, especially, that don't have and work to a plan constantly. Oftentimes they, they don't do well with people who aren't on that same operating wavelength. So people who wing it, they don't, they tend to not do well. I, I think the question is very pointed in terms of what happened to you in your last role or why are you here taking this interview? And I think that I'm sure that leads to really interesting discussions and get a, a viewpoint about how the candidate deals with challenges. So all those I think are great takeaways for the discussion here. Other things post-screening, what are the most important parts of hiring and what gives you the most insight into who to hire? Follow-up. Again, thinking now I'm, I'm really channeling salespeople. Yeah. If you don't follow up with every single person that you interview with in writing. So I, I came from the world where like you would hit, send a handwritten note, dropped it in the mail and then you waited. Now we have email and it's instantaneously, boom, thanks for the time. And, and by the way, not just like, thank you for the time. It was great to meet you and to hear more about the role. So you didn't pay any attention. You're not synthesizing information versus, hey, Lucas, thanks for the time. We talked about this and this. Here's where I believe that I will add value or be a great fit for your team. Hopefully they also closed on next steps. If you're a salesperson and you didn't close on next steps at the end of the interview, probably not getting the follow-on interview, at least not with me. That's the, that's your job is to be closing to the next step. So those are the things that I, I think you have to come to these, to, to an interview or any meeting with a, a point of view, a researched point of view that you've applied some thinking to it. By the way, show up in decent clothes. Like we're working from home, by the way. So don't show up in a suit for an interview. I've had that. It just shows that something's not right. You have a clean background and clear background. Don't be sitting in front of a closet that's open with your clothes falling out of it. Don't be wearing a dirty t-shirt. You, your dog may come on to come into the room. That's fine. 
whatever. We work from home. The other stuff that just tells me you're not like, it's a, it's a, it's a window into something other, something different that I generally will tell you is not a good place. One of the things we talk about is identifying the competencies that are key to success in the role. Some other people, sometimes people call them mindset, but they're things like adaptability, resourcefulness, emotional intelligence. What are the key ones that you think are most important? This is great. great. So I, working with one of my friends, mentors, peers, a guy named Randy Zador, who's also a fractional leader, we built a, uh, a sales assessment. And it's a three, you can get it off my website, by the way. It's completely free, no obligation. I'm not going to call you and try to sell you stuff. It's something in the world that's actually free. There's three tabs to it. One is a manager tab where a manager can assess a salesperson and their attributes. One is for the salesperson to be able to assess their attributes. And one is an interview assessment that where you can check to see how someone does. So the things that I want to test for, if you will, are resilience, determination, right? So I will ask, that's the question. I'm like, tell me something that you went through that was really hard. Cause I want to know that you like, yeah, they changed my territory on me. They cut it in half, but they didn't reduce my number. And I had two kids to feed and my wife got there, but I made my number and here's how I did. That's the, those are great stories. Or I didn't make my number, but here are all the things that I did. So determination and resilience. Yeah. And I can't teach those things, by the way. Yeah. I can't coach them. Right. You either have that or you don't. Back to the thing about research. Can the person I'm talking to go out and learn about the person in the company that they're talking to, or are they just showing up? Because again, whatever you're selling in this day and age. And it, what an executive wants when they take time with you, not the interview you're actually selling the product is tell me something I didn't know that I didn't know. That's how you add value. So if you come to an interview and you don't have a point of view, you haven't researched, you haven't thought about here's where and how I fit. Here's why I think I'm a good fit for this role. Look at what's going on in the market right now. There are a thousand people putting in applications for sales jobs and sales leadership jobs. If you're fortunate enough to get an interview, you need to shine because the next person coming in is probably going to do that where there's a good chance. Yeah. And again, you can then say, oh, they didn't give me a fair shot or, oh, they, they, they didn't like me because I was in a button down shirt. No, that's not it. And you, and again, you have to be, I look for people to be able to be self-reflective that they're paying attention. Are they talking over me? Things like that. So we've had a discussion here around the traits that you needed to move into sales leadership and then a discussion around what to do during the hiring process to identify. I think you, I, I, I love the way you, you shared both sides of it. This is what you need to do as a candidate. And then this is what I'm looking for as a hiring manager. When you think about discussion, today's discussion, what, what are one or two key takeaways that you'd sum it up for our audience? You and I met by happenstance. And here we are having what I think is a really valuable conversation for both of us and for however many people watch it. So being open to the possibility, I think, is a valuable thing. And the other is just like, is like own your stuff. Find a way to make yourself accountable for your situation. Do not blame other people. Do not blame situation in the world. There's nothing that's happened in the world right now that has not happened before and will not happen again. So you can blame anything you want. You can blame the economy. You can blame politicians. You can blame your boss. You can blame your significant other, but there's nothing that's new. It's it, whatever is going to happen to and for you is going to, is has to be done by you. As soon as you, as soon as you're able to get that, 
and really internalize it, I think your world changes. One of my takeaways from today is going right back to the beginning, the power of observation and observing things that other people might miss and then having the patience to understand, to try to understand why those things are in place. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us in the Hippocratic Oath of first do no harm and appreciate that observation that you shared with us. And Mike, where can people find you online? So there's a couple ways you can find me. First of all, I am the only Michael Mollfelder in the world. There is, a, I think there's one guy in Germany who still has the umlaut over the U, but I'm, the, I'm legitimately the only one. So that makes me easy to find. You can find, you can email me at Mike at calm ocean sales, C-A-L-M ocean sales, one word.com. You can go to my website, calmoceansales.com. You can learn more about me and what I do and how I do it and contact me through that. Great. Thanks. And if you enjoyed today's show, please re leave us a review online. You can find out more about Yardstick at yardstick.team, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Lucas Price. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.